0: Hello, and
2: welcome to Western Civ. In today's bonus author interview, I sit down with historian Felicia Kornblue and talk about her most recent book, A Woman's Life is a Human Life. It's an excellent book. Um, It covers the subject very thoroughly. I, I learned plenty while reading it. And anybody who's interested in learning about the history of reproductive rights and educating themselves a little bit about the past and things that have happened is a great read for you to pick up. Now, I'm telling you at the outset, the subject matter of the book is reproductive rights. And so if it's a subject that you're not comfortable with, and this probably isn't the author interview for you. Um, But it is an objective covering of the historical facts leading up to roughly the Roe v. Wade era and then all the way beyond to 1980. Now, it's a long book. It's an excellent book. But because it's so dense, I couldn't possibly cover everything. So the questions in the interviews that you're going to hear today are things that interested me. But I want to be clear, this is a bare fraction of all of the information that is included in the book. As always, the link is in the show notes if you'd like to pick up a copy. It was published today. So if you're interested, you can click the link and it'll take you to any number of places that you can pick it up. It's well worth a read and it happens to be a very timely piece of historical scholarship. But without further ado, Uh, Here is the interview, normal caveats about the fact that the sound quality is never going to be perfect because it's an interview. That being said, here we go.
1: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: All right. So as I mentioned before, I'm here with historian Felicia cornblue. Um, and We're talking about her most recent book, A Woman's Life. And it's an, it's an excellent book. Um, and I do highly recommend people picking it up. It's very detailed. So, I'm going to tell everyone today right now, we're not going to get to everything um, by any stretch of the imagination, but I wanted to give a flavor of what you could expect um, if you go out and you pick up a copy of the book. And I kind of want to start in the prologue, because I thought the prologue was really interesting, actually, um, because you talk about two women, um, Dr. Helen Rodriguez-Trias, and then your mother, Beatrice Cornblue-Bron. And they're kind of instrumental in starting this story, which I thought it was a I thought it was a good way to begin the book and a nice sort of hook into what it is that you're going to be talking about. So I wondered if you could talk about, I, I never like to say, you know, what inspired you to write the book? Cause it seems like such a boring question, but in this case, like what inspired you not only to write the book, but to like, to, to bring those two into the book, um, in the very beginning. And those questions might be one in the same. I'm not really sure, but, um, I'd, I'd love to hear what you, what you think.
3: Well, first of all, thank you so much for having the conversation with me. Um, I love books and I love book readers. (laughs) I love talking about books. So it's really fun. Um, So for me, the project started, it started with a tragedy, really. Uh, It started with my mother's death. And um, my mother had a bleed to the brain when my family was gathered together for, for a happy event for my nephew Eli's bar mitzvah. And if you know the way Jewish holidays work, it's always the evening and then the day. So we were there on the Friday night before the Saturday, which would be the Sabbath, where he would be doing his big show. But there's like a little show on the Friday night. And there we all were in the synagogue with Eli up there in his suit. And about five minutes in, my mother had this catastrophic health event from which she never recovered. And um, that was you know, a devastating blow for all of us. Um, and, but we were advised to come back on the Saturday for the joyous event that, you know, that in our tradition, that we should also focus on the joy and continuity. So so my family was gathered again on Saturday morning. And while we were sitting there, my father and my older sister started talking sort of over me, like across me <laughs> while we, where we were sitting in the pew about, my mother's role in decriminalizing abortion in the state of New York. And it was a story that I had never really heard about how my mother had played an instrumental role in legalizing abortion in the years before Roe v.ersus Wade. So Roe v.ersus Wade from the Supreme Court is 1973. But the law that my mom was involved in was passed in 1970 in New York um, and the campaign to 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 bring it to that point started even earlier. Um, and that law was utterly transformative. Um, I mean, I, I later learned, I learned when I followed this out and did some research, that law was utterly transformative in terms of the national picture and even the international picture of abortion. Because in New York, uh, it was the only state in the United States where there was no residency requirement. So first of all, they, they legalized abortion through the 24th week of a a pregnancy, very, very progressive for the time. But then, way out in front of anybody else, they said no residency requirements. So you could be a Californian or you could be even from Tokyo and you could come to New York and you could have a safe legal abortion procedure. So my mother, it turns out, really did play a critical role. She drafted, personally drafted, the first version of what became that transformative statute, and she did that as a lawyer and as a member of the National Organization for Women. So I started with her, and then at some point in researching her role and researching that whole New York story, I remembered that the woman who had been our next-door neighbor for about a decade in the 80s also had played an important role in the reproductive rights movement, and she was Dr. Helen Rodriguez-Trias, um, and she was one of the founders of of the movement against sterilization abuse. And she understood that as as every bit as important, uh, maybe even more important than the struggle to gain and maintain legal abortion. Um, And from looking at sterilization abuse, which really is about people's ability to have children, you know, people's right to have children, um, and not like abortion, which is about the right not to have children, right? From that point... Um, Helen and the people that she worked with started to develop a whole theory of what today is called reproductive justice, which is about both sides of the coin. You know, on the one hand, people, we want freedom to, to make decisions when we don't want to have children and when that doesn't work for ourselves, our families, our health. But on the other hand, we also want the freedom to have kids, to have families, you know, uh, in a time and, um, and a place in our lives where that makes sense. So with Mom and Helen, um, I realized that I I really had a connection to these two incredibly important and still under-researched 20th century stories that obviously still have so much to say to the times that we live in today.
2: Yeah, and I want to make sure that we're framing this right. And you you talked about this a little bit in the question, but I want to make it clear for people who are listening that You know, let's talk a little bit about the the different movements that are going on in the 1960s as we transition into the 1970s, Um, because I don't want to ask you what is the book about, but it it is important, I think, to understand it, to define, you know, that reproductive rights means more than just the right to an abortion. Um, today, that's probably what people think of. Um, but I think it's really critical for everyone who's listening to understand that at the time, you know, when this movement was really starting to gain traction and gain s- steam, there was more to it than that. So I, I was hoping you could take just a minute and define sort of like what 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 do we mean when we say reproductive rights as we're moving into the start where your where your book takes off from like what are the different movements at foot there
3: yeah well i'm i'm glad you framed it that way because i think um this is a conversation that that people who work in this area are still having um it's one i you know i was i've been on a planned parenthood board and and we talk about this all the time so yes reproductive rights have meaning um, the right to a legal, accessible, affordable abortion. That is that is one key critical component. And, and we can go all the way back, um, certainly to the 1960s, and see that there was a mass movement that was rising around that demand. Um, people also were fighting for access to contraception, right? It's only in 1965 that the Supreme Court says that the state you live in is not allowed... To prevent you from buying contraception, the state of Connecticut, which we now think of as being so liberal, you know, at the time had a law saying, you know, you cannot buy birth control, even if you're married, even if you're in a heterosexual marriage, you cannot buy birth control, right? So the Supreme Court ruled that in '65, but it took a lot of power from the grassroots. So those two things, I think, are more familiar today, right? The right to to not have kids, um, either through contraception or through um, or through an abortion procedure. But people also were talking about the danger of sterilization abuse. And that was that was not I mean, to, these days we might think about it as being like um, like a horror show, worst case scenario. Like maybe this happens somewhere in some other creepy country, not in our country. But it was something that people became aware of that actually was happening in America um, and not that not that far from from people's own experience. So particularly in the Deep South, people became aware that that Black women in particular were being either coerced into having sterilization surgeries or that sometimes they would go into the hospital for one procedure and they would come out with having had a a hysterectomy without having ever signed a consent procedure or talked to the doctor about that. I mean, in fact, that happened to Fannie Lou Hamer, the famous civil rights activist. And, and um, according to the most recent biography, this was one of the things that made her a civil rights activist, that she had had this horrible experience. And so she understood how vulnerable she was and that she had to organize with people. Right. So, so that, that kind of stuff became, Present to people as the civil rights movement rose in the 60s. And then people who were thinking about Puerto Rico and about the the projection of US power abroad in, um, in the US Empire um, and, uh, and around the world um, also became aware that there was sterilization abuse happening happening there. Um, and in Puerto Rico was a it was a particularly egregious case. Uh, probably in part because of the legacy of, of Catholicism and, and concerns about birth control, other forms of birth control, and um, and about abortion, um, sterilization became the um, the birth control of choice, um, and sometimes not of choice. Um, and so by the by the middle 60s, something like a third of all adult women in Puerto Rico were sterilized. And we're not just talking about women who are like, you know, 40, 45 years old and who are like, I don't eh, I don't want to get pregnant again. Women in their 20s and 30s, you know, um, were sometimes having this experience. They would go in for some other procedure and they would wind up being sterilized um, by a doctor who just decided that was the best thing for them. Or they were, they were pressured and coerced in one way or another, you know, because the doctor would sort of imply that if, you know, if they didn't do it, then they wouldn't get welfare anymore or, um, or that it would just be better for them. And there were stories of doctors in some places, um, doing sterilization procedures so that they could practice their skills, their surgical skills, and it was sort of used as a training thing. You know, there was all kinds of abuse happening and it actually was not at all regulated. um, And nobody in the government was paying any attention. So there was a movement that emerged. First, it came out of the, I think the black movement and the Puerto Rican movement. There was a separate civil rights movement and um, independence movement for Puerto Ricans um, and groups like the, the Black Panther Party Um, you know, the radical black group and the Young Lords Party, which was a radical Puerto Rican group. They started to talk about this danger of sterilization abuse. And then what I, where I pick up is that there was a dedicated group that started in the seventies called the Committee to End Sterilization Abuse or CESA in Spanish. Um, And that was the group that my neighbor, Helen Rodriguez Trias was, was integrally involved in forming and maintaining. And that group was the first ever organization in U.S. history, maybe in world history, that was dedicated to this problem of sterilization abuse and very much part of the reproductive rights movement.
2: Yeah, and you make it very clear in the book um, how much, um, because Um, Dr. Rodriguez-Trias is from Puerto Rico, and how much that that experience sort of influences her and drives her throughout the process. And I think it is important to remember that, you know, people bring their own experiences with them into these issues. They're not necessarily cut and dry, what we see on the television for everyone. Um, But let's talk about another organization now, the National Organization of Women, um, because that's obviously a very important organization, um, when it comes to the history of the topic that we're talking about. So what is now, uh, when was it founded And how instrumental was the organization in the early quest for reproductive rights?
3: Well, they were incredibly important. And I think, you know, these days, um, we think of that as a pretty tame organization. We, we associate them with, maybe with, um, with emails we get from their Washington DC office at the time, they really were a grassroots organization and membership was, was really important. You know, joining as a member meant that you were really dedicated to action, not just theoretically committed to to women's rights. What now started um, in the middle 1960s, they, they were a civil rights organization. They saw themselves as a civil rights organization, right, in the tradition of the black civil rights movement. They saw the successes of the black civil rights movement. And it was mostly white women, but not exclusively white women, who said, you know, there also has to be a civil rights organization for women. Um, actually, some of the key founders were people like Polly Murray who was a uh, black civil rights activist who had been very much involved in the NAACP and was a very important theorist of black civil rights as well as of women's civil rights. Um, And I write about Florence Kelly, uh, Florence Kelly, Florence Kennedy, who was um, uh, a black attorney, um, very radical, very committed to black power, but also committed to women's power. And they both were important early members of the national organization for women. And then there were folks like my mother, women, pro- white women professionals who saw that they were facing all kinds of hindrances to getting an education, to getting employment, um, to being taken seriously in politics, right? And so now was committed to all of those things. And the abortion issue rises within now from the New York chapter. The New York chapter with Flo Kennedy and uh, people like my mom and people like Betty Friedan, who was the first president of the organization, um, they, at the local level, started to problematize the issue of abortion and to, to treat it as one of the fundaments of women's civil rights. Um, and I guess on the other side of the coin, they saw the, the laws that were preventing people from getting abortions as sort of the paradigm case. You know, the perfect example of how the law could be used to prevent women from exercising their civil rights. It seemed so unjust to them, this safe um, and possibly um, easily accessible procedure instead was being made unsafe and inaccessible, right, and, and shaping people's lives. So it really became, from the bottom up, it became a key issue for the National Organization for Women that they, that they very much helped to put on the national agenda and by the way, they also were the organization that sort of carried the, the campaign in New York that became so important. Um, the, the, the organization wound up having all kinds of splits, you know, and the way the political groups wind up fighting with each other. But, but there was a spin off organization that became the key advocacy group that carried the New York law over the finish line um, to where they had the most liberal. Uh, abortion law in the country by the spring of 1970. So that was all coming from the National Organization for Women. And I would say pretty radical for that time period, you know, pretty radical for the late 60s into the early 70s. Yeah,
2: I would say so too. Um, now, my guess is, you know, most people today, you know, who think of reproductive rights. Um, and abortion rights and so on and so forth, you know, they think of those things, well, I shouldn't say that, up until, up until very recently, up until, you know, the past nine months or so, they thought of those as national issues, you know, sort of things at the federal level. Now, all of a sudden, um, they're, they're returning to sort of the state level. But up until recently, most people would have thought that, all right, if there's a push for the a right to an abortion, or an effort to end sterilization, that's probably going to take place at the national level. That's not necessarily the case. You know, it started, as you point out in the book, at the state level, but then it transitions to sort of a national strategy. And I wonder if you could talk for a second, like how does that transition happen and why does it happen?
3: Yeah, I think that's so important for today. I mean, and in some ways, in some ways it's... um, it makes things hard, right? Cause we have, to, if, if it's a local and state matter, then there are a lot more battles to fight. Uh, but at the same time, I think if we, if we understand this history, then we also understand that it can be won. So what happened, what happened in the sixties and early seventies was yes, very much. It was very much of a state and local matter. And, there was the the campaign that my mom was part of winning, for example, in New York State in 1970, but there were many, many other states that either did reform their abortion laws or that tried to reform their abortion laws. And for a long time, people just thought that was the way they were going to do it. You know, it was going to be a state-to-state matter, and they were going to go through the legislature, you know, which is, in theory, more responsive to the people. Um, They never really thought that they would be getting a big ruling from the federal courts. You know, they thought of the federal courts as kind of hostile to them, you know, to their cause. Um, And if anything, like in New York at the beginning of this story, they thought they were going to have to change the state constitution or maybe change the federal constitution in in order to move this forward. So yes, it was very much a state and local matter. And it really meant that people needed to organize and build coalitions and, you know, and use all the tools at their disposal. And the same thing with the sterilization story. So there it was even more of a local matter. The first big victory that the movement against sterilization abuse abuse is able to win is a victory inside the New York City public hospital system. So It's not even initially, it's not even all the hospitals in New York. It's just the ones that are run by the city. Right, and so they're able—they're able to do that, and it's a big lift. And then they're able to go from there to the New York City Council, and they're able to pass a historic law in the New York City Council, and that's you know covering millions of people, still not national. And then the Carter administration, the Jimmy Carter administration, is watching what they're doing in New York City and sees the way things have played out, and that that the the regulations that they're able to pass have been successful, that they've been controlling sterilization abuse to a certain degree. And so then the Carter administration takes this up in the Federal Department of Health Education and Welfare. Today it's HHS, right? Um, But it was HEW then. And so they pass regulations that cover all medical facilities and every institution that gets um, federal funding, Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera, which is basically all healthcare in the United States. And so that's a huge transformation. But in that case, like it's not even the legislature; it's not Congress for sure, and it's definitely not the Supreme Court, right? So what I see from that is, on the one hand, you know, we have to we have to carry these battles wherever we are. Um, you know, it's our I think it's our obligation, and it's it's also our opportunity. Um, whether you're working in one hospital or in a hospital system or in a city or a state, right? And also, we never. We never know in advance, like what's going to be the venue where we're able to make gains. I mean, I think this history really shows that people were able to work in a regulatory environment, they were able to work in a legislative environment, you know, and then ultimately they were able to work in the federal courts. But nobody knew that at the beginning, they didn't anticipate it.
2: Yeah, I think that's an assumption that's endemic to a lot of history. Um, People see the way things work out and they simply assume that, well, from the very beginning, that was the strategy. you you see a case like brown versus the board of education and you assume that all right well this was they they planned on doing this from the very beginning um but no i mean these movements are organic and they take time to develop and it takes we're talking about real people here not robots not just characters in a book you know the long forgotten tome this is you know these are these are real people who are making decisions and mistakes um and you know not everything's going to work and different people are trying things and that's what I think is interesting. Now, another thing I thought was interesting. and This is kind of a little bit of a, a change, um, but I wanted to ask you about this because when I was reading in the book, you know, one absolutely nowadays tends to think of you know religious organizations or organized religion as being sort of diametrically opposed um, to abortion rights. You know, they're on opposite sides of the island and they do not cross the middle. Um, but. In some ways, some religious organizations, as you point out in the book, were actually instrumental in early reproductive rights advocacy. And I thought that was fascinating. I was hoping you could talk about it for a minute.
3: Yeah, I'm so glad you picked up on that. And I'm really hoping that that people who are part of, um, of churches and synagogues around the country, people of faith, um, pick up on that and take a little bit of inspiration from this so yes there were um there were people who were very religiously engaged who also were very involved with these issues and um it starts early and i think here also the black civil rights movement plays a huge role um there were i think we we know kind of in the in in the midst of our memory, that there were people who went from the north down, down to the south, including some radical Catholic priests and some, you know, radical rabbis and Protestant ministers and so on. Um, but I think we don't know as well that there were also people in the North who were allying with the black movement, right? Like in New York City, for example, there were progressive clergy who had gotten very involved in the struggle in the North itself, you know, a struggle to integrate the schools, struggles to integrate um, public housing and other kinds of institutions, right? So they were kind of used to shaking things up and being politically engaged and kind of carrying their congregations along with them. So I, I, look at a few people in particular, um, some, some people who were outliers cause they were so activist, but not, they weren't so far ahead, you know, either of their own congregations or of the, the general community. So, and then what happens in the sixties is that they come to conclude that what's going on with abortion in particular Um, The way that um, the way that it's impacting people, the you know, the number of of health disasters that are happening, people dying and people being sort of mutilated by um, by unskillful illegal abortions. Right. All of that stuff that 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 they you know, they have um, they have congregants or parishioners who are coming to them who are asking for help and they can't provide the help. They can't provide what they usually would think of as pastoral care to the people that they care about. And so they decide that they have to get involved in the movement in a way. And um, there's one particular activist who kind of recruits um, a group of clergy, and they form the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion, which it becomes a national organization. And and some people may even have heard of it, Um, but it was based in New York. And the original idea was that they had to do something about this New York law. And they had to be able to serve their own parishioners and their own congregants, right? So it starts at one Protestant church um, in Lower Manhattan, and then it grows to be a national movement. It becomes the most important um, abortion referral network in the United States, meaning that they're ref- they're finding a way to help people who who feel the need to terminate a pregnancy. They're helping them find doctors, real MDs who are willing to provide. Safe um, abortion procedures, and um, it involves all kinds of details that I won't go into. But but they they're, they create a network where overwhelmingly they're able to get people to safe providers and um, and and protect them, except in a few um, kind of outlier instances, able to protect them from the law as well. And I think. Um, it's just such a great example. It's a great example of people of different religious faiths coming together, first of all. And it's clergy, you know, um, different kinds of Protestants who might be warring with each other under other circumstances, working with Jews. And I think even a couple of Catholic clergy, sort of dissident Catholic clergy, um, not in New York but elsewhere, were involved. and um, And they made an enormous difference, both in the service they were able to provide for those individuals, you know, who were counseled by them, but also I think they, they helped change the law because it became they, – they did it all above board. And it became obvious to legislators and other people who are regulating this stuff that, that people were able to, to find – safe abortion procedures, right, that this became the example that abortion could be safe, you know, the doctors could provide it in their own offices, even, you know, relatively affordable. Um, And, and that they were, that they were defying the law, you know, and kind of getting away with it. And that was, that was one important stop on the way toward changing the law.
2: Yeah, I bet most people would be blown away to find out that you know the largest referral network for a safe um, abortion uh, came through the clergy. <laughs> that is, you know, that's something that you just you just would never nowadays expect it. Um, but you kind of hit on this a little bit already. But I just wanted to ask a follow up question because really early on, we're not necessarily talking about establishing an affirmative right to anything what we're trying to do is repeal laws trying to actually repeal criminal statutes Um, and the big one is in new york Um, and so i was hoping you could talk about that for a moment how that um procedure is is a little bit different than trying to get an affirmative right and also sort of how the law in new york finally comes down
3: yeah, so they called themselves a movement for decriminalization of abortion, right? That's what they saw themselves as doing. And and their understanding was the the state, the state government, the legislature and you know with the signature of the governor had had made abortion into a crime. And that's true, right? In the, in the 19th century, there was a time when there was no state law. There was no, no legislation about abortion. And that was true everywhere in the United States. There was no legislation. And then in the course of the 19th century, basically every state um, passed legislation. And what, that, what the legislation did was it made abortion into a crime. It had not been a statutory crime or legislatively defined crime. And then suddenly it was one. Right. Um, it doesn't mean that abortion was completely free and open. There was common law, which the United States inherits from England. And there were certain um, there was there was certain amount of writing in the common law about abortion. Um, but basically, there was no prosecution or anything. So the state made abortion a crime. So what they wanted to do was get rid of the state law that had made abortion a crime and essentially return it to where it was in the case of New York in 1830 where it was governed lightly by the common law, kind of loosely regulated by the common law, but there was no legislation. And that was my mother's initiative, right? My mother's proposal in 1968 was to repeal all law. Just take it it out of the code entirely. Take it out of the legal code so that people could choose and you know, in consultation with their family members, their partners, um, with their doctors, with their clergy, right? People could make their own choices up to the, up to the limit that was established by the old common law. Um, so it was a a process of decriminalization. Now they didn't win that, right? They didn't get as far as my mom wanted. Um, uh, so her, she drafted the law initially in 1968. It was a full decriminalization, take it out of the code. What they get in 1970 is somewhat less, although it still winds up being the most progressive thing in the country. It, it's um, it's a law that says that anybody can choose an, um, to terminate a pregnancy to the 24th week of a pregnancy. So that's about the two-trimester uh, time that um, later comes up in Roe versus Wade. And during that time, there were no controls on somebody's choice, and then after that time, there could be considerations about um, about somebody's health or well-being, or there could be you know there could be um, a block on somebody making that choice, and so it, so after that time, it would only be if somebody's if somebody's health was um, was really at risk, or um, or if, you know if doctors thought that either their their physical or mental well-being was going to be profoundly imperiled, right? Um, So um, it's not an affirmative constitutional right. That's true. Um, But you could say it's, you know, it's animated by um, by that idea that there should be no legal regulation because underneath it, well, at the at the very least, they thought it wasn't the state's business, <laughs> right. Um, at the very least, they were saying we have a liberty or a freedom um, to not be regulated in this area of our lives.
2: And then it starts to it it changes again. Um, and you're right in chapter five, and I'm quoting here, you know, is access to abortion a civil right, a woman's right, a constitutional right, end quotation? Um, I'm curious. How did activists see it at the time? And then how does the battle for reproductive rights sort of transition then from the legislative branch to the judicial branch? Because that's a key transition.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is a key transition. So um, interestingly, feminist activists and lawyers do enter the courts uh, a little bit before this New York law that I've been studying—that's the the first foray into the federal courts—and I don't know if they really thought they were going to win. I don't think they were. Th- they thought they were going to win. I mean, these were real these were real grassroots activists who were using um, an opportunity in court just like they would use any other kind of tactic, mostly to to change people's minds, you know, to affect public opinion and reach the media and so on. But there was a case. Um, and that I researched, uh, this case called Abramovitz versus Lefkowitz in New York, which went into the federal courts and it was, you know, based in many, many activists who signed up to be plaintiffs in this case. And it was the first time that, that they asserted, they and their lawyers asserted that there was, um, there was a woman's right at issue in the, in the whole question about abortion. Um, right before then, if there, if that people had gone to court, it was, it was doctor's, because doctors were being prosecuted, um, so they bring this federal case, and then the case is mooted. It basically is pushed to the side, you know, and taken out off the court docket because New York actually changes its law, right? And the the New York the New York law that made abortion a crime was their object. Um, so you know, so that case goes away. But then there's a national movement um, of women activists and women lawyers to to seed um, and start. Um, other cases around the country, and there's a little network of cases in Connecticut, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, etc. Um, and all these people are talking to each other, and they're sharing materials and briefs and so on. And there's one case out of Texas, um, which is a little different. It's it's not. It it is inspired by the movement, and it and the and the case is connected to the movement. But it doesn't have this kind of mass movement character. It's, it's a case that's brought in the name of just one person, one woman, who's seeking an abortion, and she becomes known as Jane Roe. And that case is Roe versus Wade. Um, it's, and that case out of Texas becomes the one that goes all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And as I said, it's a little separate from this network of very activist, close to the ground cases, but it's not that separate. Um, we know that that case, um, the lawyers who brought that case were very much um, involved with, and were um, were invited to bring the case by the members of the women's liberation movement in Austin, Texas, and um, and that they used the materials that were created for the New York case that I write about and those other those other cases on the East Coast, right? So Roe v. Wade comes out of Texas, and it becomes. Because the the New York case has been pushed out of the way by by changes in the law, the Texas case winds up going very, very quickly um, from the Texas level up to the United States Supreme Court, and that becomes the case um, that the Supreme Court majority, well, that the whole Supreme Court hears, and then the Supreme Court majority rules on um, granting a constitutional right to privacy that covers the right to seek an abortion.
2: But there are a lot of stepping stone cases, you know, that that happen first and you talk about them in the book. One thing that I think is is important for people to understand is and really important in these cases and how this was a a huge hurdle uh, for a lot of people trying to bring cases is an issue, um, a concept in the legal world rather called standing Um, to have not, not everybody can just bring a case cause they don't like a law. All right. You, you have to have what's called standing, which means it has to impact you in some way, shape or form. You know, I can't, you know, sue because I don't like a law in Maryland. I don't live in Maryland. It doesn't have any effect on me. I don't have standing. Right. But obviously the problem is, you know, cases take time and, um, you know, uh, Women will come to term oftentimes before the case has been adjudicated. And so how does the court and how do activists get around this issue that by the time a case gets to a Supreme Court, the woman will have always given birth if she has prevented access to an abortion. Like there's, there's no time itself is going to obviate this. And she no longer has standing to bring the claim. Like that's a huge, huge issue. So how do they get around it?
3: Well, what they start to do in New York, really interestingly, I mean, and, and thank you for this question. Um, I don't want to get into legal weeds and but I don't think it is a matter of legal weeds. I think it's really important. Um, And it's something that you put your finger on. You know, they first have to establish that any woman has standing in this case, right? And especially a woman who's not currently pregnant. And and that is kind of hard. And it requires them to do some new thinking. I think it really requires you know, that I think maybe that's how we get to the idea of there being a quote unquote right, a constitutional right. Like they have to think it through. Well, you know, if it's not going to be some individual person who is right this minute being immediately harmed by this law because she's seeking an abortion that she can't get, then how do we think about these laws that forbid someone from seeking an abortion or getting an abortion? Um, you know, how do we think about them as a violation of somebody's rights? And they so they had to they had to come to kind of a new understanding of what civil rights were about um, and what civil rights. What, what civil rights and equality might mean. For a woman citizen of the United States, a potentially pregnant or pregnant citizen of the United States, right? So in this New York case, it, it's all new, right? <laughs> thinking, thinking this stuff through is all brand new for them, and trying to think about like, how could we use the Constitution? And you know, under the Fourteenth Amendment, there's a promise of equal protection of the laws. Like, could we use that? Like, well, in what way does this make us unequal? You know, and how is it? How are men treated differently from? women under our laws Uh, you know so they have to come to understand that um and then they also they use the due process clause also part of the 14th amendment which is where we get our ideas of privacy and liberty and they say okay well how about so they they do make cases about equality uh, arguments about equality but they also say under due process under liberty um which is where we you know we usually think about freedom from the state and freedom from regulation um that they think that's also involved, and right they come to understand it as not just affecting that one individual, but affecting all citizens who might become pregnant, um, or who might resemble people who who have the capacity to become pregnant, and who might be haunted by the fact that they don't have this freedom, right? It's it's a very it's a very new and in some ways innovative way of thinking, not just about the Constitution, but about about us people, as citizens um, of the United States and what our relationship is with our government and what our freedoms are and, you know, the degree to which our bodies are our own um, and not subject to certain kinds of regulation. So it's really, really important.
2: Yeah, I, it's interesting to remember that, you know, all of this was new then. And, I, and that kind of leads into... My next question, because I, I I know that a lot has been said about Roe, and so, you know, we, we don't need to spend huge amounts of time on it. Um, but I was curious as to, and I'll, I'll get back to that point in a second, but I'm curious as to what the initial reaction among activists was when the decision was handed down. Um, I'm curious as to whether or not it was, you know, a ticker tape parade sort of style or whether or not there were some. Folks who looked at the decision and wondered, well, maybe we should have stuck with the legislative branch, and so on and so forth. Um, and I also think it's important, if, if for folks who are listening, if you've never read the decision, <laughs> it's worth reading. Um, you know, it's uh, Justice Blackmum does some interesting. Um, interesting work here. This is, for legal scholars will know, if you don't know the term uh, penumbra, um, it's the edge of a shadow. It's beyond the edge of a shadow. And this sort of goes into the right to privacy and all this stuff. And some legal scholars, you know, look at this and start scratching their head immediately. Um, But I, I wonder what the thoughts of some of the people who had been actively working for the right to an abortion thought about the decision when it was issued.
3: Well, among the people that I write about, there were two reactions. One, oh, thank God, was the first reaction. um, And they saw it as an enormous, enormous victory um, and were very grateful. And then the second reaction was, we still have work to do. I don't think, interestingly, I don't think that at the time people had the reaction that, that some, some people have had later, and this was something that Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually said um, in her, some of her later years, that, pe- that, that maybe it was a mistake to stop working in the legislature and to, to move instead to the federal courts. Like, I don't think people really said that in 1973. Um, but there were people who, who understood that it wasn't enough Right, that that the what what Justice Blackman did, writing for the majority in the Supreme Court, was he established this three trimester system. Right, he broke up a pregnancy into three parts, and said in the first two parts, people will have uh, relatively free choice. Uh, second trimester could be a little more regulated. The third trimester could be regulated significantly. Um, so people understood right from the get go that there was there there would be people who. Um, for health reasons or whatever reasons, um, might might need or feel the need to seek an abortion procedure that was in that later period and that that would be an issue. So that was one thing. Um, and the other thing is that very soon after the Roe opinion comes down, there's a huge scandal around sterilization abuse. And this is around um, these two little girls in Alabama named the Ralph sisters and this becomes a national scandal there these are kids who are being served by a federal government program and uh, they're being given family planning services birth control um, even though they're very young and, and maybe that wasn't such a good idea either um, but even worse than that when there are questions raised about the birth control a social worker decides that they're good candidates for sterilization and um, and their mother Insists that she did not understand the consent form that she that she signed before they went, and so the people who were watching the issue of sterilization abuse understood that Roe versus Wade, even as as important as it was, was not going to be enough to really secure people's reproductive rights in the in the full way that they understood what reproductive rights were, right, and that there were still going to be issues around. Uh, race and class and geography where you were in America, um, and that people were going to need to assert rights that went beyond the rights that were preserved by Roe versus Wade.
2: Yeah, again, I think it's important to see it as an organic um, as an organic unit functioning here that it wasn't the end of the process for a lot of people. You know, we tend to, you know, when we're talking about history and reading about history and teaching history, we'd, we like to, you know, put things into like really nice boxes and say that, well, okay, well, this was, this happened on this date and everything was, and it changed for everyone from that point forward. But as any person of color um, living in the South in the 19, late 1950s will tell you that the schools were not um, desegregated 10 minutes after uh, Brown versus the Board of Education was decided, which is why they needed Brown too. But um, nor did any other decision sort of put the official kibosh on anything. It's, it's always organic. History is not linear. Um, and we need to wrap our minds around that. Well, we're right at our time right now, but I always ask, there's a lot more in the book. Obviously I tried to keep it as finite as I could, but is, was there anything that you really, that I, that I missed? That's obvious.
3: Well, um, I mean, thank you for all of those questions. Um, I'll just say I do, um, I very much write in the spirit that you were just talking about. And that's why the book doesn't stop in 1973. Um, You'll see, uh, anyone who who picks it up, that the tight chronicle that I'm telling goes through 1980. And on the abortion front, it was in 1980 that the Supreme Court said that it was okay um, to deny Medicaid funds, like federal government um, healthcare funds, for someone seeking an abortion. And that meant that abortion became kind of a class privilege. Um, so I think that's really important. And then on the sterilization abuse front, um, it's very important to follow that story out um, into the 70s and, and uh, at least up to the early 1980s, because that's a story that continues to be very, very live all through that period. Um, so, yeah, I think, just think that's so important to understand. Roe was a landmark Of course, we do miss it. We do want those rights. We do want the Supreme Court to say that there's a constitutional right to privacy in this area and at the same time to understand it wasn't ever enough and restoring those rights won't be enough today.
2: Yeah, and I, and again, a good lesson, a good lesson for anyone who is just interested in starting to learn more about history, that, you know, the simplistic way that it's explained in textbooks or on really short blurbs on websites, oftentimes I like to say is so simplified that it's not even correct anymore. Um, so it's one of those things that that's why these sorts of histories are so important, because they give so much um, extra depth to the topic that um, I think that, anyone who has any sort of inkling and obviously it's it's a it's a great book for um, current events as well if you would like to learn more about the history of the things that a lot of folks are shouting about then this is a perfect book to pick up to understand that um, it's an excellent book um, I hope it does well and I'm I'm sure it's going to um, so thank you so much for coming on the show it's been really great Thank you Adam. So that concludes my interview with author and historian Felicia Kornblu. Again, it's a wonderful book. Link is in the show notes if you'd like to pick it up. And just a couple of plugs for the show. We will pick up our narrative on Friday once again. In the meantime, if you're looking for any additional content, you can check out the website at westernsippodcast.com. If you're interested in ad-free shows... You can get those for $1 a month at patreon.com forward slash Western Civ. And if you'd like the whole story all over again, but especially at the beginning with more detail and superior audio quality, you can check out Western Civ 2.0. You get a free seven day trial. The link is in the show notes. We're well moving on to the Peloponnesian Wars at this point, which I think I covered in like 15 minutes the first time around, but this time, going to give it its full several episode treatment. Again, links are all these things are in the show notes until Friday.
1: plus